Welcome to Abuelas en Acción, a podcast for our common good. We're following up with part two with Dr. Mike McGlade, the climate change and human migration. He had an enormous amount of rich information and education for our listeners and both Marie and I, and we felt that this really needed to go to a, a second phase of talking with them. So we're very grateful to have him back here. I am Dr. Rosemary Celaya Alston, and I am here with my co-host, Marie Dahlstrom, talking with our Dr. Mike McGlade about climate change and human migration. This is part two of our interview with him. He is a professor of geography, sustainability, and Latin American studies at Western Oregon University. His scholarly and teaching work includes investigations into Latinx immigration and health, climate impacts on both of the American continents, and environmental sustainability and social inclusion since the beginning of the neoliberal era. The Center for American Progress says in their report, getting migration in the Americas right. The United States must reject the politics of cruelty and chart a new course on migration policy that is cooperative, compassionate, and pragmatic. The report also says that the United States must have a clear understanding about what is causing mass dislocations and also be clear about what is not happening. The United States is neither being invaded nor does it face an unimaginable migration crisis. Properly understood and managed, migration represents not simply a challenge for the United States, but an opportunity. Thank you, Mike, for continuing this conversation with us today. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm most pleased to talk about these topics. In part one of our episode, episode Climate Change and Human Migration, you mentioned the dry corridor. Where is the dry corridor? And what is the role yeah. of climate change in, in this? Yeah, this is, it's kind of a new term, um, that describes something that uh, has been around a long time it, it, since the, the geology of Central America became more or less what it is today. Um, but what it is, is a region of what they call dry forests, which really means seasonal forests that grow on the Pacific side of Central America and even a little bit of uh, the state of Chiapas and, and uh, extreme Southern Mexico. The dry forests grow on the, on the, Pacific side of the Central American Isthmus. So if you go from Mexico and then the country south, Guatemala, uh, Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama, uh, by then you're right to the South American continent. And so that those forests, uh, especially in the northern countries on that Pacific side, are seasonal. What that means is they have a very distinct dry season which happens uh, beginning in about November and extends through maybe the end of April, depending on where you are in that region. And during that time, most of the trees will lose their leaves. That's a normal thing. If, if you were to go there and see the trees without leaves on, oh no, it's a crisis or a drought, maybe, but not necessarily. That's been going on for millions of years. Uh, what's changed is that this area has become more unstable 
in our uh, changed world of climate. So what, uh, why will the dry corridor continue to be a sending region? Yeah, to um, understand that, um, a few kind of contextual points I think are important. One is that a lot of the most vulnerable people in especially the Northern Triangle countries, and by that we mean Guatemala, uh, El Salvador, and Honduras. Um, these um, regions um, have populations, a lot of them living in, like for example, the, the, the highlands, the Western highlands of Guatemala is part of this region. Um, first of all, it's, it's an, a large group of people. And second of all, it is a more marginal kind of habitat to live in. And, what has happened with the displacement that, I, that we talked about in our earlier podcast of people out of these uh, very rich farmlands in the coastal lowlands um, where a person could make a, a family could make a, a decent living growing uh, food crops for themselves and maybe something extra to sell. Um, with the displacement of people out of there, where are they going to go? Uh, most people in Central America have historically not had the means to migrate out of the region somewhere else. And even during the, the, the civil wars uh, uh, in a lot of those countries, um, big part of all the migrants ended up in Southern Mexico. So they don't necessarily even have the, the means to migrate out. The best solution is just to go somewhere else where no one else is, or not as many people are. And so one of the things that's happened in some of these areas is that people have moved in in larger numbers into these more marginal lands that are uh, among other elevations. Some of them are up in the highlands. And so there's a lot of people, uh, if you take the, the whole kind of dry corridor, uh, numbers in the millions, um, if you take the most vulnerable areas, maybe in the north, something on the order of a million and a half people maybe, there's different estimates and depending on exactly where you draw the lines. Um, and so there's a lot of people here making, eking out a marginal existence. Let me just illustrate what marginal means. If you look at, and, and, and anyone with a computer or a smartphone, you can Google this, it's very easy to go, child malnutrition, Guatemala. And what you will run into is any number of studies that have shown that at least half and maybe more of Guatemalan uh, Mayan children, especially uh, living in these kinds of areas, suffer from malnutrition, extreme malnutrition. There's a lot of growth stunting, uh, there is a predisposition uh, for diabetes. Some of it is probably programmed before birth even uh, by the stresses that the mothers face. Um, so this is an area of, has always been an area of kind of marginality anyway that people, some have moved to uh, because there's nowhere else to go. And so in, in a nutshell, that kind of helps us understand at least uh, why this area is of interest. These are not rich, abundant farmlands where, you know, um, on a couple acres, you can really make a go of it. This is really marginal. A lot of it's slopey land. Uh, it's prone to drought. This is, you know, even this kind of normal seasonal drought, uh, sometimes is longer than other years. But what climate change has done is it has made the droughts worse in the area. And still having a lot of other problems and, and, and a kind of a newly emerging problem, which might be counterintuitive, is how you could also have a bigger frost problem now. We're saying we're in a warmer world and yet 
or frost problems. Should I explain that a little bit? Or do you think the listeners might be please, curious please, about that? Please, please, that would be helpful. Because mm -hmm. it sounds counterintuitive. And a lot of climate change science, especially when you start looking at impacts in societies, is complex. It, there aren't simple explanations that, that you can just do in one or two sentences that really say, okay, I got it. It sounds counterintuitive. Here we're talking about uh, warmer climates and we're talking about more drought, damaging crops, so what's going on? Um, and some of the higher elevations pushing up uh, maybe 9,000 feet above sea level, um, frosts uh, are a greater risk than they used to be. Now, why is this? Um, especially when just below these lands, uh, doing a few thousand feet down, it, the, the bigger problem is uh, the temperatures are warmer and the warmer air dries out uh, the crops more. It's just hot, you know, when it gets hot, it often gets drier, right? So why would it be that, that frost is a problem? So what's happened is with the instabilities in climate, the greater droughts, especially in El Nino years, um, the El Nino phenomenon is pretty widely known in, in Latin America to cause droughts in some regions in Central America is one, and this is nothing new in itself, okay? Um, the droughts are just more severe because the temperatures are even warmer, so more evaporation. Um, so what happens is these greater and more intense droughts uh, in those El Nino years, which happen every three to five years typically, uh, has have made for greater instability. And um, what happens with the, the, the cropping in the area, a lot of it's because it's very cool climates. Uh, corn is a tough go, not very productive because it's so cool in these areas. Uh, a lot of people are growing potatoes, they're kind of a good cool weather kind of crop, but even the potatoes have been uh, hurt by uh, severe weather of all kinds. Um, but the frost thing, what has happened is when people can't make a living growing their crops and enough to sell for whatever their expenses are, maybe not even enough to eat, what can you do? So a lot of these folks have turned to the obvious solution, which is nearby, and that is the nearby forests. If you go in, you can cut enough wood and get some cash. Now you've got the cash to buy food. So when you cut forests in these highland areas, you expose the slopes. So you get what's called nighttime radiational cooling from those slopes. When they're forested or even partially treed, that nighttime radiational cooling is checked, it's minimized. But when it's deforested, it's bare, the land cools off even more. It's kind of like if you've ever been camping, do you sleep under a tree or out in the open? If you're in a mountainous area, you'd probably rather be under a tree because it's gonna be a little warmer. The same concept applies here. So people are, are cutting trees and causing cooler nights. That cold air forms along the ground from the radiation going out and some of it flows down the slopes as well and causes frost in lower elevations than you might otherwise expect too. So, the, so you have this, this emerging frost problem, ironically, in a warmer climate. So take that one for complexity. Oh my gosh, Mike. Well, so let's jump into policy, uh, immigration <laughs> policy. Let's talk about the role of the United States. What are recent okay. changes in policies that are affecting the region? Yeah, so, so what's happened is there, there was a, a, a project that was substantial. Um, the U.S. Alliance for Prosperity, it was an aid package to the region, recognizing some of the kinds of challenges that I'm talking about. 
and there were, were frost protection uh, 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 schemes where, where farmers literally would, would be alerted on, with a cell phone signal if there was going to be a frost alert with a local, there were some local meteorological stations that were set up in some of these more uh, frost prone areas. And uh, there was kind of a technical package of aid and a little bit of research going on, trying to figure out what would work for these families here so they didn't have to leave. So this in a sense was a counter migration policy mm -hmm. in that it wanted, it, it's, one of its goals was to keep, give people a means within which they could continue to farm. It's like you don't give someone a fish, you give them the means to catch a fish. That's sort of the same concept here. And so it, it tried to get to the root of the problems. And a lot of the money was spent on other things, but, but there was some money spent on, in this region. There were some promising results. Uh, but, uh, and so, you know, the degree to which people don't need to cut trees down anymore, the degree to which people can grow crops that make it in this area means they don't have as much push to leave. And by the way, there was a huge out-migration, especially from the Western Highlands, part of the dry quarter from, from Guatemala in particular. So um, this program, I think it was 2018, I wanna say it was about November of 2018, was canceled by the Trump administration. So one of the drivers, in other words, the migration, the climate instability, this was, program was, was trying to mitigate the effects of this now, uh, the program has basically been just disappeared, discontinued. It wasn't formally announced to be canceled, but basically the funding dried up. So what uh, now is in place is, is really nothing. And so the vulnerability of, of these, these folks uh, is pretty much unmitigated now. So, um, and in fact, there's been some evidence, early evidence I've been hearing a little bit about uh, that a lot of people would like to leave now, or, and I've tried to leave, but there's a problem <laughs> not being able to get across the U.S. border, of course. So there, there's all of that. And some of them are, 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 are accumulating in, in Mexico uh, during this, this COVID outbreak. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so that's part of the policy. It's, it's a strange, it's an irony. On one hand, um, the greenhouse gases, about 40% of the extra greenhouse gases in the atmosphere come from, have historically come, the accumulated ones have come from the United States. Uh, we're no longer 40% of all the emissions. We're about 20% now, but the accumulated ones still were, were the biggest story there. Uh, so we're a partial cause of this climate instability. And there were some efforts made to recognize that. And, and now we're just just uh, discontinuing any any effort at all to, to ameliorate some of the consequences uh, of that climate instability on other peoples in other parts of the world. Uh you know, in, in recent years, in particular since um, the Trump administration came into uh, office in 2016, um, uh, I, I personally had not uh, paid a lot of attention to uh, programs like the one you mentioned to uh, um, to work on counter migration uh, I know that we've had um, we've been a global leader for many years and are, there have been wonderful programs I know that President Kennedy uh, had amazing uh, programs uh, including the Peace Corps of course but uh, programs 
that um, were helping people in developing countries. I don't know that many of us saw those programs as benefiting the U.S. They seemed um, more altruistic, and, and yet I'm sure they were not. This one, this program that you're mentioning um, that was um, discontinued in 2018, this is a program that benefits the U.S., but I think Americans have uh, not really understood, and um, it has really been used in a way to be divisive and in a way to implement cruel uh, immigration policies at the border. But this is a program that really was um, uh, showing um, progress and one that requires more than just a few years to have an impact. Is that right? Mike? Yeah, th this is the kind of, you know, long-term in investment here um, would, you know, some continuity would, would help people stay on the land. Um, I don't have enough evidence from what I read uh, how well it would have worked in the long haul. I can't say with confidence that it would have solved a big part of the, the push factors uh, from the region. Uh, I would imagine it would have helped some had it been uh, in place. Um, but I think a lot of it too was discontinuing it was more, probably more symbolic. Uh, we're not gonna help uh, those folks down there. They're just sending all these people up here. Why should we keep giving them money? Um, kind of, that was kind of some of the explanation for and, the-, the And yes, and that's know. the question so many Americans have. I hear right. that is what benefit do we have in uh, allowing more migrants into our country? And, and that's a whole nother segment, obviously. But it's one yeah, that yeah. can be easily manipulated and one that can be, uh, again, uh, it's an important, this is such a complex topic, but it's one that we as Americans need to know more about, again, so that we can be more discerning and really understand candidates uh, and policies of either uh, party, either of our two parties, to understand, you know, what is the kind of United States that we want, the kind of America that we want. Um, well, the one thing that I hear uh a lot is the different spins that people put out in terms of trying to garner more votes their way. So it's really important for us to weed through what really is, if we just take climate, and that's a passion button for you all out there, it really is clear that there's so much behind the dominoes effect that we're seeing with climate being such an issue in our in all of our our world but the spinning the spin masters that can that can put this and place it in the hands where we're not getting anything for our buck by helping other countries kind of thing is what i hear quite a bit as well absolutely mike let's talk some solutions uh let uh well let's start with what hasn't worked yeah um there is the, the larger kind of mass grain production strategy, cheap grain production strategy that I mentioned in the earlier podcast. Uh, that's just undermined farmers in all of these regions who would grow grains for local markets, but no longer they're undercut by imported grain prices. And it's various levels of, of severe in each country. Each country has its own sort of story. Some places it's not so severe as others. So that, that's kind of one 
thing. That's a, that's a larger agricultural policy. That's very hard to change, frankly. I wish I could be more optimistic, but uh, where do we start at when we start at a, a primary election year for president? What state do we start in? We start in Iowa. Well, Iowa is a corn growing state. So you probably don't want to even mention that you might not really want to have such large subsidies for corn farmers because uh, you're going to have trouble getting out of, of, of Iowa with uh, uh, intact as a candidate. So you have that kind of, of policy problem. And given that the farm states, uh, a lot of them are not uh, uh, po- uh, states of a lot of population, uh, the Senate, because each state has two senators, whether you're California with 30 some, 38 million, whatever it is, or whether you're um, one of the, 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 the farm states without a lot of population, you have the same representation. So that's a tough nut to crack farm policy. So I, I, my sense is we probably shouldn't focus too much on that simply because it's probably kind of an impossible task. So what to do then? Um, I think uh, it would take a long-term commitment uh, to the economies there to give uh, them a little more autonomy uh, uh, to kind of move away from this kind of um, policies they've had where there's been very little investment in education of the peoples uh, and rural development. Um, the degree to which maybe the United Nations or some other organizations can uh, continue to assist in some of this would help. There is a that, that, that program I mentioned and then the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations is another way that some of these programs uh, are administered. Uh, I think even if they were fully funded that wouldn't be enough but it would be a start um, but then again, addressing the question, yeah, should we uh, take people who come from these countries? Uh, do we need to have a, a kind of new policy that looks a little more carefully at uh, asylum petitions um, from these areas? Um, this, you know, the, the, here's excuse made. The excuse is always made, well, you know, they have to wait so long that people just circumvent that process entirely and so on. Well, why are they waiting so long? Because there's not enough attorneys hired as, and trained as judges to look at this. How hard would it be? We have lots of young attorneys coming out of law school uh, who would like to start their career somehow. Um, couldn't we train a, a lot larger number of them to, to work quickly with these cases and either say yay or nay, uh, give a clear answer? Um, instead, the solution has always been to just delay and stall and so on. I'm sure that you have run into those stories, both of you, haven't you? Absolutely. And certainly uh, a couple of summers ago, I was a volunteer uh, working with RAICES, the uh, legal program here in Texas, um, Mm -hmm. especially during the detention of uh, and separation of uh, families and young children. Uh, And uh, you bring up a very good point. And I, I this is the, these are the kind of policies, these are the kind of decisions that are going to have to be make, made for the future. And I really am excited seeing all of the protesting going, now, uh, going on now for racial justice. I'm excited to see millennials and younger students that um, are getting involved because the law enforcement angle. Uh, That's what we've used for all of these years, Mike. Mm. 
And, yes. and as Rosemary had, had, had mentioned, we have to approach these differently. We're in a new era. And, um, but I have to say, I'm really hopeful that uh, young, uh, our, our kids and uh, younger generations are taking interest and seeing the impact of not being engaged in a, a, a civic way in, in order to ensure that our country uh, is the country that we are proud of. And I think the, the younger generation, say from mid-teens up into the 30s, are, they are seeing, uh, they're experiencing their own kinds of, regardless of their race or ethnicity, are, are experiencing their own kinds of lack of opportunities of lack of social mobility. Um, there is an okay boomer kind of meme, for example, that just suggests a dissatisfaction with the way uh, folks our age have run the country mm -hmm. and, and have kind of right. shaped economic policy, economic justice policy. And so this generation, understanding their own structural disadvantage, I think is, is understanding more of the, the, the disadvantages and the structural violence that Latinos experience that African-Americans experience, that Native Americans experience, that many people from other parts of the world as well experience. Um, and the degree to which maybe they're going to, to be able to put themselves in the shoes of another disadvantaged group a little better because they see themselves that way in some, some meaningful way. We, I, I'm optimistic too that we could see some change. And it'll be interesting to know the degree to which the, the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, movement uh, coalesces with a larger kind of pan-ethnic coalition of, of especially young people who are saying, look, we need economic justice. We need jobs. Uh, and uh, understand that other people who also are disadvantaged coming from other countries are really in some ways in the same boat, but even more disadvantaged. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how all that works. I'm not saying we'd have necessarily a fully open border policy, but how about at least a serious treatment of applications for yeah. entrance into the United States? We're, we're not serious about that. I mean, if, if we really were interested in justice, wouldn't we have enough judges? We, it's no surprise that there's gonna be lots of people in the border. That's not a new story, really. Um, and we, we could do much better. And if we're gonna say no, we say no, but at least have some criteria and a fair process. Wow, Mike, this has been amazing. And um, we know where to find you to have you come back for a future episode. And uh, this has just been amazing. Uh, I'd like both of you to uh, share any closing comments. I think if there's any additional kinds of comments or this was thought provoking for any of our listeners, that if they'd like to follow us on Twitter, at Abuelas in Acción, um, please ask us some questions. We will try and get back with you as soon as we can, but what an open way to have a dialogue about what really does matter in terms of climate um, yeah, and, and climate I, issues. Absolutely, I, I just am delighted that, that you all are listening and I hope that what we've done here is is thought-provoking for you. Um, I, I don't pretend to have all of the great solutions to these problems, but uh, I think we could do much better uh, than we're doing now with just steps like that. And, and in the end, uh, whatever your views are, please vote. Absolutely. And on that note, 
we uh, thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Mike, for being with us. We love you. And we ask uh, all of you to join us again on Abuelas en Acción. Gracias. <laughs>